He is risen. Oh, I'm so glad that you are here, and we are kicking off a brand new series called Kicked in the Faith. Has anyone ever had anything unexpected in their life that, uh, that happened with them, and it kind of shook their faith a little bit? Anyone like that? Anybody say amen to that? Anybody ever had anything that's just like you had this, whoa, my goodness, I didn't see that coming kind of moment in their life? Anybody ever had that? Or is everything predictable for you? If so, you need to be up here talking, right? Because uh, that's not the way that my life works. Not everything is predictable. Sometimes we just get kicked in the face. Sometimes it seems like life is just working in opposition to us, and the only thing that we can grab onto is indeed our faith. Well, the, the thing that I want us to, to sit in today, um, and this being a glorious day, the day of uh, res- just celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to know when things don't go as planned, we can trust in Jesus. Amen? When things don't go as planned, we can trust in Jesus. We're going to see today, actually, that there was some rumors that were swirling around the people in an area called Corinth, and there were some rumors and lies and some gossip that had been spread throughout the church, and it was some, some talk, maybe that the resurrection isn't real, and so they gobble it up, and then Paul has to go through and correct this, this bad teaching. And if you have your Bible, you can go there. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be there eventually. But, but as you flip, I want to say just a couple of things. Really, when it comes down to, when, it, when we go through life, when we get kicked in the faith, the question that has to be answered is this. Will you have a KO, a knockout? Will you have a TKO, a technical knockout? Or will you move forward by faith? Because the question isn't, am I going to go through something? You're going to go through something. Christians go through things. They really do. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so glad that you took a chance on this church and this time uh, to come and, and just kind of see what we're all about. And I have to tell you, we are all about Jesus. We are. We believe so firmly that if somebody can predict their own uh, you know, predict their own death, burial, and resurrection, and then actually pull it off. Like, we just, we're all into that. So we just want to do whatever he says, and we want to follow him. And we, we actually believe as Christians, we will follow him until, until we die. We're all in to that. But yet, even in the midst of a struggle for a Christian, uh, the, the question remains, will I have a knockout, a technical knockout, or will I move forward by faith? And here is what becomes so challenging. You can't answer this right now. As much as you want to say, well, I'm going to move forward by faith. You just simply don't know. You have to go back on the facts. And sometimes it comes down to perspective. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this past week, and he's a restaurant owner in town, and he's just talking about um, how hard it is to have a restaurant Because when people come into a restaurant, they come into that restaurant, and he wants to give a great experience, but yet everybody goes into into a restaurant like this, like in town here, uh, just goes into it with their own baggage. So his goal is he just wants to just give every single person who comes in just this overwhelming service. He says he just wants to overwhelm them with service, and he wants them to know that they matter. He said, because it's not like when people go to the beach. He said, when you go to the beach, it's like you're on beach time right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you're on island time. You go to Tybee, we're on Tybee time. So you go over there and you're like, as long as it isn't raining, you go to Tybee, you go to the beach 
It's like perspective changes. Oh, oh, we forgot our chair. No big deal. I'll go down and pay way too much money for another one, although I don't need it. But you're like, you're on Tybee time. What are you going to do, drive two hours to come back? Nope. You're going to suck it up. You're going to get the chair because you are on Tybee time. Or um, maybe for you, you're like, you go down there, and you, you're, it's lunchtime, and you're thinking, man, I just, I really want some seafood. Well, you're on Tybee time. You're on island time. So you're like, sure. I mean, I realize it's a sandwich and fries, and I just paid $20 a plate for it, but I am on Tybee time. Your perspective changes. And it was great in the midst of this conversation because he was saying, you know what? It isn't that I have a restaurant that it's like on Tybee time, because if it were on Tybee time, he says, people just come in, and they're like, they're ready to have a good time. So unless, of course, it rains, right, because that changes some things. Or unless someone like forgets sunscreen or they don't listen to what the mama said about reapply, 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 and they come out looking like a tomato, or unless they come out of it with some unexplainable tribal face tattoo or something weird like that, other than that, when you go to the island or you go to the beach, you're going to have a good time because it's a matter of your perspective. Perspective means a lot. So the problem with perspective is this. The problem perspective is it's subject to my own life because we don't live at the beach. And if you do live at the beach and you're here, why are you here? No, it's like, right? So it's like the, the problem with perspective is it's subject to our own life. It's to our, our own choices and our own upbringing and some things that we can control and some things we can't. And it's also subject to our willingness to embrace reality. You see, perspective changes because we don't live on island time. We live on Dublin time or Lawrence County time or or our time. We live in the real world, and perspective does change. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said, and he said that outlook determines, he says, outlook determines outcome. Outlook determines outcome. It's a matter of perspective. So as we kick off this brand new series and we're here on Easter Sunday, I want you to to be asking yourself this type of question when it comes to our outlook determine our outcome. Do you either have a faith or a fixed outcome, an outlook? Is Is your life, is it more about faith or is it more fixed? You see, if it's if it's faith and it's it's elastic, it grows and it changes. And if it's like that, it's kind of like a waistband. And, and if you have a, a faith outlook, it's obstacles. You, you live in the way that obstacles can teach you something, that, that difficulties can bring you something, that challenges actually help you grow. Or other people's success actually brings joy to you. Or uh, you live with a, this, this belief that feedback is essential because I want to expand and I want to grow. That's the, the faith outlook. And if there were just four words that to, to define this, it's, it's this, I might and I can. I might and I can. That's, that's somebody whose faith is willing to grow and expand. I had, a, I had a terrible thing that happened to me actually when I was in college. I worked at a video store. I know it's a shocker for some of you. We actually used to have those. We did. And it wasn't Blockbuster. It was actually Hollywood Video. Which, ironically enough, I was thinking about this this morning, and I worked at Hollywood Video, and I actually had to wear something that was very close to what I'm wearing today. Um, I had a choice today, but I didn't have a choice on that day, and we had to wear this, these 
black pants and dress shoes. And I was a college student, so I bought all this stuff at Walmart. Like, I just couldn't afford anything real like, for me. So it's like, and I knew it wouldn't get to last, but it was like, I'm a college student. So I bought my, myself some, some dress shoes that were not very comfortable and some dress pants that were not very comfortable. And I wore just a white shirt similar to this and a red bow tie and a red cummerbund. And this is what I had to wear to work, and it was humiliating. Um, and my vehicle didn't have air conditioning either, so it was just terrible. And I'd go to work, and I would sweat. I'd be like, I would just feel nasty. And I would go into the video store. Well, everything was fine at the video store. I didn't really, I'm not necessarily even a, a movie-watching person, which was really ironic, because these people were like, they love working there because they get to see all these movie, movies for free, and they're like, they're like, did you see that movie? I'm like, what movie? They're like, E.T. No, I'm just kidding. I've seen E.T. But it's like, they would say all these movies, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about because it wasn't a big deal to me. I just needed some cash because I like to eat, and I was in college. And, and everything changed at this one particular job one day because I always had to return the, the videos to the shelves, or then I had to go get the videos to bring them forward if somebody had reserved them. I had to bring them up to the counter and there was only two of us working on this given day. And, and I remember that I had gone to, uh, I had gone from the counter and then gone to one of the racks. And I leaned down and I did one of these numbers, but I did it a little too quickly. And there was no elasticity in my pants. And, and all of a sudden, I heard something. And then I felt this breeze coming up from behind me, very close to my skin, actually. And, and then lo and behold, um, I, I actually had ripped from here all the way up to the back side. Yeah. So it's like, hey, great day at work. And the problem is I had to finish my shift like that because there were only two of us there. You see, uh, we have to have a, a faith outlook that's, that's elastic, that helps us grow. If it's fixed, we're just going to bust apart at the seams. If it's just fixed, that means that every obstacle then is something that we view as getting in the way of living the rest of our life, and we can't be taught by it, which means that every time that we receive a challenge, it just shows us our limits instead of shows us what God can do. Uh, and then if we have this a fixed outlook, then we just see that every difficulty is pointless in our journey. Or if there's five words that, that would define a, a fixed outlook, it is this. I cannot and I never will. I cannot and I never will. So, so the question, uh, again, that we have to wrestle with is this. Can we change from a fixed belief to a life of faith? Can we change from, from a fixed belief, like I believe this, this set fixed certain things either about me or about God, or, or maybe I don't believe in God and I just believe in me, whatever the case may be, can I move from this fixed into a life of faith? And of course you can. Of course. The, the good news is this, and the good news was after the, the, the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is that the good news is indeed good, and that there is a pathway to peace, and that there is hope beyond your current circumstances, and there is a point with where you are in your current circumstances that God doesn't leave his people alone. And yet we know that things just don't turn out the way that we plan. It didn't for the disciples. With the, with the disciples, they believed that, that maybe Jesus was the Messiah, but what they didn't believe is that Messiahs die. They believed that, that Jesus, they had a, 
a, a fixed belief that, that Jesus may be the Messiah, that didn't really believe that he was God yet, but he may be the Messiah. But yet what they didn't believe is how in the world could the Messiah die? They believed that he was going to be a political or maybe a social reformer or leader. And yet when Jesus died, they went into hiding. It exposed their unbelief. It was after the resurrection that their belief then came into full form. And then these very people weren't in hiding in that upper room anymore. Then they were released. And God's Spirit released them to create the church. The church is still thriving 2,000 years later. Well, in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to go through 22 verses, but I want us to just kind of walk through this passage together. So I'm not going to read all of it one time like I do sometimes, but instead we're just going to take this in chunks. And what we're going to see specifically is that how this, this bad belief about the resurrection had been woven through the people in Corinth. They had received the gospel and they had received it willingly and joyfully, but yet after they had received the gospel, some lies had came in and they had permeated the church and they started to believe them. As a matter of fact, in this area, very Greek in thought, um, they were believing that what most Greek philosophers had said in the past. They had considered and they had believed that the, that the human body was a prison and that as a person dies, it actually releases the soul from prison. So in, in the philosophers, starting with Socrates and all the questions that he asked, and then Plato, and then Aristotle, each one's a little bit different, but one was a student of the other. All of this is now woven into these people, so now the, the lies and unbelief is going through, and they don't even believe the, the gospel message that they had once believed. 1 Corinthians 15 Look at verses 1 and 2 first. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. He says, I want to remind you of what I've already told you, and that you've taken your stand. Like, you've acted upon this gospel. It isn't that you just heard it in passing, and it's like, no, you took your stand upon this. There was a moment in time of where you professed belief. He continues, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. And if you were to, to look at this in the original language, it would be better uh, interpreted, you are being saved, which means it wasn't a past tense thing. It was a present tense. So it's you are being saved. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. When somebody gives their life to Jesus... Jesus doesn't then turn around and give them a bunch of rules so that they, if they keep the rules, they keep themselves saved. Because I just, want to, I just want to tell you, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And if I could keep myself saved, or rather, if, if, I, if I could actually keep myself saved, I think I would realize it by now. It's been about 20 or so years. I couldn't keep myself saved if I wanted to. It's Jesus who keeps people saved. And that is what's being referenced here in verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved, or better interpreted, you are being saved. 
It was that day you professed faith. It's that day you surrendered because of your sinful state. Then the acknowledgement that Jesus is the, he is the redeemer and he's the one who can give you a pathway to the Father. He's the one who can guarantee you a life of peace. He says, remember this day. And he says, and on, started on that day, but until this day, you are being saved. Jesus keeps the saved saved. If you could lose your salvation, you would, and I would. Jesus doesn't give someone salvation and then give them a set of rules to follow to keep themselves saved. Think how cruel God would be if he actually operated like that. Think if the, if the gospel was actually like that. He's like, no, you get saved, and now I'm going to give you a bunch of rules to make sure you stay saved. I believe that's one of the that, that, that is one of the most twisted lies that Satan has woven through humanity, is to think that those who've actually committed their life to Jesus could lose what only Jesus gave them and what Jesus keeps for them. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or have died. They, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now he gets into proof. And what I love about the Bible is this. The Bible just doesn't use the Bible to answer the Bible. The Bible does do that, but it also, it, it allows us in our human experience, and in this case, if we're told lies, we're told then to use logic. We can use logic from within the Bible to counter the lies. The lies that have been woven through the people in Corinth is that the resurrection really didn't happen. Notice again what Paul says. He says, for what I passed on, or for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He's like, this is the most important thing. I didn't go talk about being compassionate and kind and all those other things that are important. He says, no, 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 this is of first importance. He's like, you have to get this right before you do any of those other things. You have to do this right, or else you're going to just create a bunch of rules for yourself to try and be right. So what does he say? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What's interesting is this is one of the earliest New Testament writings. So the Scriptures that he is making reference to is not the Gospels because the Gospels hadn't even been written yet. He's making reference to the Old Testament according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures so I want to give you some scriptures. You just listen to these. Maybe you can write down the source if you want. They won't be on the screen. Job 19, 25 through 26 in the Old Testament. Some believe this actually to be the first writing of the whole collection of the Bible. Job 19, 25 and 26 says this, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought, is what Job says. So he has a full confidence millennia before what's happening, before actually what's even being discussed here in the church in Corinth through these letters and before 
what happens with Jesus. And, and, and God allows him to have this vision and understanding. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body is decayed, so after he's dead, he says, yet in my body I will see God. He says, he's believing in a resurrection. He says, yes, I know that I'm going to die, but even when I'm in the grave, I believe that I'm going to see God again, that there's going to be a resurrection. And I will see him for myself is what it says in verse 27. Yes, I will see him with my very own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. You see, in the, in the Old Testament, there was a promise of the Messiah's resurrection. In Psalm 16, 8 through 11, it says this. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will always rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Again, a millennia before the resurrection, there's this message of the Messiah coming and his glorious resurrection to be. You know what the problem is? The problem is we stray. The problem is that even though we may not try to, to do evil, we do evil. Even though we may, we may intend to, to have our life go a certain way that seems right at the time, it just doesn't always work that way. But God even let us know this in Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That we all stray. You don't have to have some sort of spiritual title or religious title or church title that then you can be, become perfect. No, no, no. We all stray. That's why Jesus saves and Jesus keeps those who are saved. And he continually saves them, petitioning for their souls. This is where the importance of Jesus' sacrifice comes in. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it's the verse just preceding the one I just shared. It says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, was upon Jesus. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, a Christian is healed. Not by their own rule keeping, not by their own doing good, not by their own family line, not by their own church attendance, not because they, they became generous, not because they are a, a philanthropist and because all, all of a sudden God's going to say, well, they are just such giving people, then obviously they need to be in heaven. Because none of those things do anything for the sin that weighs us down. He was pierced for our transgressions. Let that sink in. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus. And by Jesus' wounds, we, if you're in faith in Christ, are healed. So why is this so important? It's so important because we're actually enslaved by sin. Because we can't just climb our way out of this. It's something that we're powerless to change, but yet the gospel gives us the power over. Indeed, everyone is enslaved to sin until the gospel sets them free. Everyone is enslaved to sin until the gospel sets them free. 
Actually, Paul uses the resurrection to defend the faith. If you have your Bible, go to, uh, to Romans 6, 5 through 11. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. We're actually going to finish there in just a moment. But Paul uses the, the resurrection to defend the faith. And he also uses it in a way to not only defend the faith, but also to show how the resurrection is the very thing that, that gives us this way out of the enslavement to sin. This is what it says. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be united or we will be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that we might so that it might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Amen. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. For since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Verse 10. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, we, he lives for the glory of God. So also... You should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. The power of sin was broken through the resurrection. The resurrection power of Jesus broke the power of sin. And when somebody commits their life to Jesus... The Holy Spirit, the same power that was used to bring Jesus back from the dead, then empowers a believer to break the power of sin and to break the enslavement to it. Now, let's go back into 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to just get into some, some logical things. And I'm so thankful that Peter uses this because logic is something that that they wanted, because of the Greek philosophers, they wanted to know logically, okay, tell me about their resurrection. So Paul goes through and he explains um, by giving logical proof. This is, this is what he said. Let's just start in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and then He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Here's where the logic comes in, verse 5. And then He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So he says, logically, think about this. First, he appeared to Peter. And then the other disciples. And then 500 people at the same time. He's saying, think about this logically. If this were a lie, you would know about it by now. And this is about 30 years, by the way. This letter was written approximately 30 years after the resurrection event. So he says, some of these people are still alive. Go ask them. You don't have to go far. Just go ask them. That he, he appeared to Peter, who would become the, the leader in the early church and who would die 
a death that, that he believed was, was unworthy of dying like Jesus. And as history re- reports it, that he actually wanted to, to be crucified upside down because he didn't even consider himself worthy of dying in the same way that the Son of God had died. But he also says that the rest of the apostles and 500 people at the same time. And then he mentions James. Interesting note here is many people believe that, that James was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, writing in the New Testament. So the, the letter of James that you can see in your New Testament was already something that was, that was known. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was convinced that Jesus was God. So much so that he wrote about it. And that that letter would then, it would circulate. Written to Christians. And it would, be, it would circulate. And it would be one of the bases of faith. And, and then centuries later, it would find itself into the, into the canon of Scripture. So Paul uses logical proof for people who needed that proof logically. They wouldn't be okay with just saying, well, that's just what the Bible says. Instead, they said, no, 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 no. Look at the logical proof. All these people were convinced that the resurrection happened. Why do you question it? Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He says, so the reason why I'm here is because the resurrection was real. I would be living a completely different life if the resurrection weren't real. I put everything aside. I put my, my whole life aside. I, and Paul would say, I, don't even, I didn't even feel like that I deserved to be called an apostle. But yet, because I was persecuting the church, he says, now he's using his own testimony, his own life. He says, ask people about what I used to do. Ask people, they're still alive. Ask people as to the type of person that I was. And, and then ask people to see the change that God has made in my life. Let my life be a testimony to the truth. You see, I think when, and I believe this, when our faith gets rocked by lies and untruths, we just need to trust Jesus. In a day and age, and, and we live in, in such a social media-driven world, and right now, we, we can, there are people who can twist the news in such a way where fake news seems like real news, and they can manipulate video and audio to where you and I can't tell the difference. And, and we live in a day and age where we're like, now we can't really know the difference between truth and lies. I want you to go right back to 1 Corinthians 15 every time that somebody questions the faith, every time somebody tries to deconstruct the faith, every time. I want you to go back to this because this is the thing that was unexplainable about those, around, those who did not believe in Jesus around the time of the resurrection. This is the part that they couldn't get around. This is the part that changed human history. Verse 12 through 19, Paul said this, But if I preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. He says, if this isn't true, we're actually in a worse place than we were before. But He did not raise Him, but... He did not raise him. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Verse 12, he says, but if but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? He says, how, how can you even start to believe this lie? That this, is, that this is a hoax, that this isn't real. Again, he's speaking directly to a Greek-minded people who believed that when someone would die, it would actually release their soul from being imprisoned within them. So to, to this group of people... And the unbelievers, this would have been hostile language. This would have been countercultural, as some say. This would have been uh, an aggressive form of truth because they did not believe in the resurrection. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen. The first fruits of those who, who have fallen asleep. For since death came upon a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so it, as in Christ all will be made alive. So we settle on this truth that was a sign of defiance against the unbelieving people in, in the church in Corinth. And he says, for as in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And this gets down to the nitty-gritty of, of, I believe, why you're here. Because the truth of this passage in verse 22 is such that, for as in Adam all die, we're, we're all children and descendants of Adam. So as in Adam all die, which means that that when we die because of the sin nature that's been passed on to every single human being, if we die in our sins without a Savior to, to rescue us from our sins, then we will die and we will be eternally separated from God. That, that when we leave this body, there is no other alternative and there's no other way to go to heaven. Once we breathe our last that is the last chance we have to repent. That is the last chance. And there is a moment coming for all of us where you can defy what I'm saying right now and say, well, I just don't even know, I don't even know if I believe that. I'm just telling you, there's going to be a day where you don't have that option to choose unbelief because you're going to have to answer for the sin nature because... For as in all are in Adam. But look at the good news at the back end of this verse. So in Christ, all we may, will be made alive. So what Paul is saying is, to you and I, he says there's really two different types of people. There are those who are in Adam, they're stuck in Adam, and they're stuck in their sins. 
And those people will ultimately be condemned for their sins. Or there are those people who have repented of their sins with the acknowledgement that Jesus is, is Lord and Savior. And also acknowledging that there's no way to be right with the Father but through Jesus. And those people, in accordance with this scripture, so as in, so in Christ, all will be made alive. So he says there's two different types of people. If you're in Adam, this is as good as it's going to get for you. This is it. So eat, drink, and be merry. But those who are in Christ, it's going to get a lot better than this. Because where we're going, there's no sickness, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear. We get to experience the love of God in a more personal way than what we can on earth. So when things don't go as planned, trust Jesus. When things don't go as planned, trust Jesus. It's what he's done, what he's going to do. What you see him doing in other people into the logical proof of the resurrection. So when your faith gets rocked by lies and untruths, what are we going to do? Trust Jesus. I want to give you two questions and then I'm going to be through. What have you been doing when things have been going well for you? So what have you been doing when everything seems to be going well? Do you hide from church? You just give yourself all the credit, just pat yourself on the back, rely more heavily upon yourself, taking the credit for your success. What do you do when everything's going well? Because when things are going well, that says something about you. Another question, what have you been doing when your faith gets rocked? What have you been doing when your faith gets rocked? You've been hiding into, in a bottle, a pill, a relationship, a workout plan, getting judgy over others, ignoring the warning signs of your doom, hiding from church, or blaming God. What have you been doing when your faith gets rocked? If, if any of those things explains how you have either responded to times of success or times of defeat. There's only one thing we can do, and that's repent. It's the acknowledgement that we've fallen short of God's standard. And, and repent literally means to turn away. So it's turning away from that, that way of thinking and living, striving, trying to do everything yourself. But instead committing the rest of your way to God. See, repentance is a wonderful thing. And you have an opportunity to repent right now. You have an opportunity, even if you were bribed to come here today or you just you kind of felt like you needed to be here because you're staying at someone's house, whatever, however it is that you came here today. Repentance is an amazing thing because no matter how, how you came here, it's still offered for you. No matter how religious that you think you are, repentance is still available for you. No matter what your faith story has been, 
repentance is still available for you. Turning away, acknowledgement of Jesus, asking him to save you. I'm going to give you some takeaways, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. For you, I just want to give you some tangible things of a way of helping your faith to expand. And your faith will expand if you do these couple things. First one is, don't freak out. Just don't freak out. We all go through things. Don't freak out. Second thing, seek guidance from His Word and from prayer. So you're not giving up. You're not giving in. Your faith is, is flexible. It's expanding. It's, it's elastic. Third thing, lean into His people. Lean into His people. Praise God and don't run from God. And the last one, trust God and hold on to him because he's holding on to you. Just trust God. He will bring you through that storm. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, but before we do so, I just want to give you a chance. If you, maybe there's something stirring in you and you, you, you now are questioning, like, I, you're like, I don't think that I'm a Christian. And yet there's something stirring in you that's driving you to say, but I want to be. I want to know more about this, Jesus. Here's what I would ask you to do. We don't do this very often, but here's what I would ask you to do. When everybody stands, if that is you, I would ask you to, to go through those double doors. And there will be people there who would love to share the truth of the gospel with you to celebrate with you, to tell you more about Jesus and how you can know Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, and yet you're, you're walking in unrepentance, you just have hidden sins that, that you struggle with and you've been acting upon. Repentance is possible, and you can begin that process now. And when we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to know that if you're a Christian and you are, you're in, in just in a season of unrepentance, if you commit to God and you repent in your seats, then I welcome you to come up and take the elements. But for everybody, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus, I welcome you to come up, take the elements, and then we're going to respond with singing. Would you stand with me? And if you're not a Christian and you're not interested in being one, there's nothing moving in you to become one, I would just ask that you refrain and you just stay right where you are. Nobody's going to judge you. But if you do want to become a follower of Jesus, when people start walking and moving out of the seats and coming up and taking the elements, I want you to walk in the opposite direction and just go back to the back doors. And I would love to have a conversation with you, and I know some other of the leaders would like to also, just so you can get to know Jesus in an intimate way. I'm going to pray for us, and then you can come forward and take the elements. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that the resurrection is fact, that the Bible is true, that the message is 
is not a message of lies, but it is a message rooted in truth. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that the, that the, the gospel is not just a, a momentary thing, but it's something that, that takes a part of every facet of our lives. And that through the work of the Spirit, you change us from the inside out. And Jesus, as we come forward, I thank you for your body that was broken on the cross and your blood that was shed for sinners like me. So as we come forward and we take the elements, God, we do so in remembrance of you. Amen. The tables are now open.